You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Ken McLeod. Ken learned Tibetan, translated for his teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and has published a number of highly regarded books about Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River and Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, Trackless Path. Ken is working on another book about the Tibetan Buddha Buddha Dharma and is the founder of Unfettered Mind, an organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Bach, the Cello Suites, performed by Angela East. This is the Zig movement from the suite number one in G major, BWV 1007. <laughs> This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. About which we'll speak more later. Yes. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Talia Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Ken McLeod. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, he began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Kin is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. The organization he founded and continues to guide, Unfettered Mind, offers a rich set 
set of teachings distilled from Ken's long teaching career, and it can be found at unfetteredmind.org. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much, Stuart. It's a delight to be here again. Good. So, we are um, happy to have you, and um, as we usually do when uh, guests return, uh, since it's been a few months since you've been here, um, the better, well, maybe not quite half a year, but about half a year. Yeah, I think about that long. Right. So, um, are there any uh, um, developments in your life, in your uh, writing career, or any other aspect of uh, your experience that you want to um, fill in, uh, in terms of... Uh, What's been happening? Well, I think the most relevant one is that uh, I'm finally making some substantial progress on this book I've been working on for a while. Right. Uh, One of the most, what I've been struggling with is to find the right voice, um, the way to write it. And this is a book, uh, just for listeners, uh, (coughs) where you are... um you're going to be talking about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma um, and attempting to translate to the 21st century some of the, some of this material, or 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 enlighten me further about what yeah, your I, aim. I, I, I don't think I can reach that high. Okay. Um, <laughs> you mean to enlighten him? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> this, is, this is getting out to a great start, Stuart. <laughs> The the book is on a particular aspect, and one might call it the characteristic aspect of Tibetan Buddhism, that is, Vajrayana had inherited the mm-hmm. uh, Indian tradition of uh, Vajrayana, or as it's also known as Tantric Buddhism. It is much misunderstood uh, because there really is nothing like it in the West. Uh, and... Uh, People have practiced it for many, many years without any really clear understanding of what they're doing or how they're going about it. Not everybody, but a goodly number. And uh, I've had my own struggles with it. And what I'm trying to do uh, is translate uh, not the texts, but the... uh, uh, I'm trying to give people the flavor of what it's like to practice Vajrayana, what's involved in it, what kind of things you're wrestling with. Because uh, I think it's fair to say that you have Zen. Zen has a particular flavor, and you can even say that Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen have their particular flavors. Sure. And uh, the same is true of the Theravadan tradition. And in Tibetan Buddhism, you have a number of different traditions. But the Vajrayana has a, a very particular flavor, uh, or a set of flavors. And uh, I think it's helpful to... Uh, people to to understand you know what do you do with a deity what is a deity uh that's a we're we're very much concerned with what things are in the west and so is the deity a spirit in its own right with a life of its own and uh which you somehow form a connection with is it a uh, archetype or a, a symbol that uh, can evoke different aspects of our psyche is it a nexus of energy on which we can draw upon um, this is something that uh, Jim pointed out. These are different categories. Well, like most aspects of experience, deity doesn't fit comfortably into any one of those categories. And so in that way, it becomes a gateway into the mystery of being. And that's what I'm trying to write about. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, I'm reminded uh, this morning, Stuart and I were having uh, participating in the Seekers Cafe, 
that we're uh, a part of, and uh, the conver- that conversation included a uh, an assertion by one of the other participants um, uh, about the um, the relative status of of nouns and verbs. And with nouns, he he was making the point that um, you have. I think the problem that you're that you're describing that you've just described. Uh, quite eloquently, just in terms of the word deity. Um, what what does that mean? And what I understand you then to be saying is that is that you want to impart in this book you're writing the flavor of what it's like to actually engage with um, what the, what the Vajrayana would uh, um, or how how Vajrayana uses that. That um, term and and whatever whatever it means in the Vajrayana uh, yeah. context, and, and try to convey that from an experiential perspective rather than a descriptive experience. Yeah, I mean, perspective. Yeah. Okay, I mean, and this, this is part of the context that came up in our discussion this morning. But you've talked about this on the show before that there's, you know, Westerners tend to be very concerned about uh, uh, what's real. The ontological status, the as ontological opposed to the epistemological status. Indeed, uh, well, uh, you guys can carry on this interview <laughs> quite happily without me. <laughs> this is this is just us digging at each other yeah. here. <laughs> this, this is the kind of uh, bickering that we do. Right, um, but but I, I, but you have to choose one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but my 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 understanding of you know, just just even what you're saying is that when you when you talk about. Uh, a first-person perspective or a relationship to a practice that it is just just that that these these questions of ultimate uh, reality or ultimate being and and things like that are secondary to whether you have an experience. What's the nature of that experience? What you, what action do you take in the practice? And then what what happens what happens to your experience? You're saying that questions of ultimate reality take second place to that? Um, I'm saying that uh, questions of sort of the uh, ontological questions, like what's real, like is a deity real, is a secondary question to whether if I engage wholeheartedly in deity practice uh, and there's a certain class of experience that uh, I'm likely to open up. Well, you, you raise... A number of questions for that simple Indeed. statement. Uh, because, and I think they're important. I, a lot of people find it very difficult to engage deeply with something if they don't, if if they aren't convinced of its quotation marks reality. Mm-hmm. So, I, mean, I suppose one of the questions which I hadn't thought of really is. Uh, if the ontological status of the deity is in question, then how do you engage with it emotionally? Right. So, so I think I, I can relate to that just from my own um, lifetime experience, having been inculcated with Roman Catholicism and having, at a young age, accepted the reality of, say, the Virgin Mary. And what and what and the emotional resonance that that um, had for me, and then later in life coming to, 
I don't know if question is quite the right word, but not 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 any longer hold um, with certainty the ontological status that seemed to be clear when I was but, a kid. Right, uh, and uh, I think we have some very practical examples of uh, just what you're saying. Look at the work of an actor. An actor knows that the role they're playing is not real in some ultimate sense, that it's a work of fiction, and yet their skill and the depth of their performance is all in the degree to which they make it real for themselves and for the audience. Well, that's very interesting. You remind me of uh, Janis Joplin's performance at the Monterey Pop Festival. We're going back a few years now. And uh, you can look at the, it up on YouTube. And this is uh, this incredible performance. And uh, I, I think she's sing Ball and Chain or Take a Piece of My Heart Out, one or the other. Uh, and uh, everybody in the audience is just like, because there's this young little girl, you know, and in this grip of this emotion and, and has completely entranced everybody. And then she finishes the song and bounces off the, the set, almost skipping. <laughs> so, so, you know, so that's a little different. That, that, that's a, that I'm likening that to the actor. Where where they're they're able to communicate that emotion, uh, and here we get into acting theory, of which I'm not very conversant. Are they actually engaged in the emotion or not? I don't know. Uh, that that is interesting. I, I just happened to listen to. There's a brand new biography of Janis Joplin just came out, and I happened to have listened to a, an interview with the author, who makes precisely the assertion that many people. In, in contrast to what people have tended to believe, which is that Joplin was just acting naturally for her, but that in fact her musical performances were highly... In other words, she went to a great deal of trouble to create the effects that she, that she was yeah. um, uh, using in her performances. Yes, and, yes, that's very evident. Yeah. Yeah. So and and she could do very and the other thing is that um, you know the, the the performance that you meant that you mention I think is the sort of thing she's most f famous for but she did she had other styles that she also inhabited with with equal skill I think yeah she's a classically trained opera singer yeah. so so then again I would come back to the question would a um, someone engaged in deity practice in the Vajrayana tradition have to have a commitment one way or the other ontologically to the existence of the deity to access the uh, emotional depth that offers the promise of transformation. Well, I think the short answer to your question is no. <laughs> let, let, let me elaborate, though. Uh, I tend to agree with you that the... Um, As you engage in these kinds of practices, I think, at least I can speak for myself, but I, uh, I think it's true for others. Concern with the, uh, for the, uh, about the ontological status uh, recedes in importance because um, 
you're engaging in what is traditionally called magic or sorcery. Mm-hmm. And in in Vajrayana, it's it's very clear the deity, you know, your your experience of the deity is something that arises in your own mind. It's like adopting a new identity in mm-hmm. a certain sense. And that's crucial because you come to know that you can have this identity and it can be just as real as your ordinary identity. And that calls both into question, which is the whole point, is to free you from that kind of uh, deep emotional attachment to an identity. Okay. Uh, and so, <clears throat> and, and it's very definitely recognized that the uh, deity, in, in this sense, uh, deity practice is a method. Now, because it is sorcery or magic or whatever term you want to use for that, uh, there are people throughout the course of history into the present day who develop such a strong relationship with the deity, like Atisha, for instance, back in the 11th century. He just had to pray to Tara, and Tara would appear before him, and they'd have a conversation. His relationship with Tara was was that. Now, what was he relating to? I don't want to even get into speculation about right. that. Uh, but there are many uh, practitioners, I would say my teacher was one, who um, whose relationship with certain deities was such that he could uh, invoke their energy and have them affect activity in the world. Uh, and he was known for that, as well as were many, many of the great Tibetan lamas. So from a Western perspective, just as a footnote, you know, yeah. um, a truth claim like that would start to bleed into the uh, ontological because... Not and I, I I personally don't and I'll explain why a little bit later why I don't quite go there in that way but uh, um, that's that's usually where uh, the rationalist uh, you know suddenly says oh it's, it's it's fine for you to convince yourself that the deity is real and to uh, you know use this allegorical methodology for transformation when that intensity of that uh, relationship impinges on the physical world all of a sudden then then people's hackles go up. Well, there's a story about that from the Chinese tradition. Uh, <clears throat> I can't remember. Somebody's, I think it's from the Chinese, but uh, somebody's, a person is sick and uh, a priest is called to pray for him. And one of the relatives says, uh, what do you mean? Uh, you know, prayers can't possibly be effective. And uh, the priest doesn't say anything. Uh, and uh, does the prayer. And this person continues to rag on him and is leaving. And finally the priest turns around and says, you know, you really are a bit of a fart. <laughs> and the person gets completely incensed. He said, this is very interesting. You said that uh, prayers couldn't have any effect, but I just said a little just called you a little puff of air and look what effect it had on you (laughs) (laughs) indeed but uh, behind this whole conversation we're having just now this this is where I think um, and your opening comments made me think of this this is where I think we need to reposition um, religion I think we need to uh, reposition what we mean by uh, what is real 
um, because most people relate to what is real as something that is material. Mm-hmm. But just as my example uh, illustrates, uh, emotions are real. They have real effects. They go out in the world and they have very, very real effects, but there's nothing tangible there. Uh, and people can try to reduce it to neurology and so forth, but that gets pretty sketchy at some point. Uh, and I think one of the the great tragedies that happened in the course of the evolution of Western society is that uh, science managed to establish it had a monopoly on what was real, and the church allowed them to. And I don't think we've ever recovered from that. I I agree with you on that. I'm not sure that the church allowed it, uh, in, in, except in so far as it was um, at first in mechanical resistance, and when that mechanical resistance seemed to have um, not as much effect in the world as uh, the industrial revolution, machines, etc. Um, I think it just lost credibility. It's not that it's not that the church failed to resist. I think it's just that their resistance was entirely ineffective. I agree with you, and that's why I use the word "allowed." They didn't actually stand on the ground that they knew themselves. Ah, I see. Okay. Well, but then that it gets us back into practice, and and what, um, and this. The point that you're, you're making about what you're trying to communicate in this book that you're writing, yeah, exactly, and and so, you know, I'm st- I'm still st- personally stuck with having had at a very young age of three or four, um, what in retrospect I would call a mystical awakening or experience that occurred quite explicitly in the context of uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, church and liturgy being enacted around me and and yet um, I later came to have a different relationship to to all of that honestly the whole the whole schlamazel as we might say and that's and that's and that maybe that's a a, um, recapitulation of what happened in the West in general Um, so did you come not to trust your experience? I wouldn't say that I, I wouldn't say that was true. What I came not to trust was were the descriptions of what were possible in experience from uh, the Catholic laity uh, or not laity, but uh, priests and nuns essentially, and mm-hmm. and books that purported to uh, explain. Uh, dogma and experience. I came. To, I came to question the assertions in from those sources, and 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 I think part of the problem, and it's the problem that the Catholic Church is continuing to grapple with, is where does authority come from, and um, and and that's why. And, and I'm wondering. How that's configured in the Tibetan Dharma or Vajrayana? Well, that, that takes us into a lot of areas. But before we go there, I, I just like to uh, part of this repositioning that I've been thinking about is uh, 
in Buddhism we have uh, the two truths, I'm sure you know, uh, usually translated as relative and ultimate. Right. But I, I've increasingly come, and, and we have the four noble truths. Well, uh, I've increasingly come to regard uh, this notion of truth as uh, more and more problematic. Mm-hmm. because it is linked to this no- a notion of reality and right. determining what is true and so forth. Uh, there's an Italian philosopher, politician, who says uh, any notion of higher truth carries uh, the shadow of violence in it. That's a nice, that's a nice phrase. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's not an exact quote, but it's something mm-hmm. along those lines. And, uh, and so... I, I, this has moved my vocabulary so that I, I, I'm very uncomfortable talking about uh, religious truth as a higher truth mm-hmm. anymore yeah. because that gets in the higher. I, I think it's a different way of knowing things. There's a, I mean, there, there's kind of the traditional metaphor. It shows up in the fourth way, but I think it comes up in other traditions of, you know, the vertical, vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension, and it, it that metaphor is useful just in kind of depicting that truths in the horizontal realm, the truths about the world that we live in, are in a different category than truths about the interior uh, uh, beingness that we experience. Well, I think think that's exactly right, and I I think it points to the way that we use true in two very different ways. We can say something is true in that, you know, that um, there are six electrons in what carbon atom oxygen can't remember uh, and uh, that's true or you know evolution is true all this theory about things like that but uh, we can also say that note rings true or that piece of music rings true or that poem rings true and these are two very very different uses of the word true they don't mean the same thing at all and I think there's been a conflation there and the domain of religion is much more in the second category Absolutely. than in the first, and that's where I think the church failed to stand. Well, I, in some respects, I think they, I, the church tried to um, reposition itself uh, in that arena. Uh, my, my sense is that the the reason it allowed science to sort of pro- progress in its way it did was first, as Rob said, it couldn't do anything about it, but then second, it, it would sort of say, okay, we're, we're about over here, you're about over there, and for a while there was kind of a I think a reasonable kind of sharing of influence that began to fall away, I think, in the, uh, probably the late 19th century and into the 20th century. Actually, one of our uh, interviewees would would argue probably it started in the late 18th and through the 19th century. Slowly. Falling away. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm, I'm just uh, thinking of that the book about uh, um, American religion. Oh, yeah. And that uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, whose title escapes me. But uh, that was a. Um, um, it, it was interesting to see the evolution of essentially Protestant ideology shift um, as throughout throughout that in America she was specifically looking at America and that was uh, that was quite interesting to me because I hadn't I didn't realize just just how just what a flux if you look at it from a longer term perspective I'm sure the people at the time didn't quite experience it that way 
but um, but it resulted yeah. in 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 the twentieth century in in this realm where I as a Catholic could be raised um, in a parochial uh, a Catholic parochial school setting and and come to question um, what had seemed very relevant to me when I was very young and was not able to question in the in the same way that that later I could so um, but it wasn't about authority I certainly was um, I don't think I, I would have understood what authority was when I was a, a, a young kid well to the question of authority authority I think looks very different depending on which approach to truth we're taking. Mm -hmm. uh, authority in uh, science is ostensibly, anyway, based on uh, established theory and evidence. And some consensus uh, that develops over time yeah. with regard yeah. to those things. I mean, one of the people I knew, a professor I knew at, uh, when I was growing up, when he was in high school, said, and on his PhD oral exam, which was in probably in the 20s or something like that, there was a professor on his examining committee that did not believe in atoms. <laughs> <laughs> wow. In the 1920s, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, that, uh, it wasn't a settled matter of uh, science. Well, the, uh, w then there's the, the, the Thomas Kuhn thing, the old, the, you know, the old guard has to die away yeah. before the new um, understand or consensus emerges. Exactly. Well, I, I, actually, um, it, it's not now clear that atoms exist in the way that we uh, uh, think of them. Anyway, that's that's a <laughs> sure. Okay, we're not going down yeah, that yeah. one just yet. Uh, so, uh, but in the in the domain of art, and I find art a very useful analogy for religious and spiritual, uh, mm -hmm. particularly spiritual and mystical practice. Uh, it, it, it's not based on consensus. It's not based on theory. It is based on, uh, well, in case of music, on your ear, your sense uh, of what it is. And what is interesting is that when a person plays, and you know this very well from your music, from your flute playing, when a person plays and hits a note truly, everybody experiences that way. Yeah, there's an ob there's an objective uh, dimension to something ringing true. Well, I'm, I think we have to be very careful about saying... Well, I'm just going to say everybody hears it that way. Does that mean there is an actual objective? Well, I, 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 guess, so. I guess what... How would I put it? I guess I, I maybe I am saying that because uh, uh, to say that everybody hears it in some way, and I think there's a gradation of how people hear it based off of the relative training of their ear. That or, or, or even their willingness to open their ears. Yeah, yeah. but 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 I'm, I'm just thinking of like even from my own music teacher. You know, when when we have we talk about this this subject, it, you know, he'll say that uh, the audience will will be drawn into the sound. They won't know why, and that actually makes it even more interesting. Well, you're right, and I would defy you to find any way of measuring that. No, you have to. I mean, you have to see it. I mean, he and I was just talking to him uh, this morning about this. That you know, he he's developed to such a level that uh, he can scan, you know, with his mind's eye, uh, a student 
and see very specifically uh, what they're doing or not doing. And uh, I, I experience the reality of this because I, um, I go from a place of not knowing, uh, you know, what the f he's talking about, uh, to becoming more sensitive to subtle plays of musculature, and then get to a point where I, I can be playing repeatedly, and he'll say, you know, yes, yes, no, no, you know, yes, yes, and and I'll start to have a glimmering of the fact that he's actually seen something uh, uh, quite present in my body and what my body's doing and I am not con- I am only slowly getting to be more conscious of that that's interesting because when I was coaching uh, teachers in, in teaching uh, I could hear when they were speaking in their own voice yeah so this uh, and I think that's that's a precise uh, analogy and I don't I, you and it's hard to say you know what that what that is Exactly. That's why I say I defy you to right. me- measure it. Right. It's, like, it's like pornography, you know. You see it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have to drag us down to the gutter, Rob? <laughs> it, it's my job. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, in some sense, I think it, it, it's hard to quantify uh, that, but but, it, but it's uh, very but it's very accessible to experience. And I, it, it, but I think the approach your teacher is taking is the crucial one. It's not a case of quantifying. It's a case of training the person to attune to it, which right. is exactly what he's doing with you. Right, right, and and uh, uh, you know, and it, it is that classic. I mean, we say this. We say this in our spiritual tradition that you know the being learns by demonstration, and mm-hmm. and in that sense, that that's a that's a good example of demonstration. But what you're describing with trying to coach someone to speak authentically is it, until you have someone willing to point out to you that you're not authentic you're not authentic there you're authentic no you're not authentic i remember that with my own teacher uh those are the moments i remember most because those are the moments where suddenly there was a distinction present that hadn't been present for me or accessible to me before i want to i want to also point out though it's not just performing it's also being present to like um we went to a uh, uh last night a really wonderful concert uh, at the Green Center here by the Danish String Quartet. Mm-hmm. I was um, deeply moved by some of the music that they were playing, some of which was unfamiliar to me, a Shostakovich piece, for example. And, um, and you know, I, was, I happened to be sitting next to someone I didn't know, um, uh, to my left, and so it's it's very interesting. Not that I not that I had some window into his mind, soul, emotions, but um, I I realize that it's not just a matter of training the remarkable performers that we heard last night. It's also the audience and the extent to which they have been lucky enough to be exposed to a kind of training to actually hear and not and not be doing something else there are many other things people might be doing instead of listening to what's actually being played and 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 that that's an important part of this too yeah i, I agree with you because there are certain kinds of music that i just i don't have any ear for i cannot understand what is what is being done and yet other people are extremely moved by it right Right, and and so that's and and so, 
But I also, but I also think that that uh, you know when when Stuart's being trained. Um, actually, I'm I'm thinking of uh, the last trip that his ensemble uh, took in Japan, and and I was along for the ride and to uh, carry stuff around. Uh, at least that was my ostensible uh, purpose, but. Um, at one point, one of Stuart's fellow uh, musicians, they were they were practicing 15 minutes before a performance, in a, as it happens, a, a really beautiful a Buddhist uh, temple. And um, we were off in this other area while they were doing their practice, and this uh, friend and colleague of Stuart's at one point says, um, how do you listen to this? My wife... You know, can't stand the shakuhachi. She's, you know, she 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 sends me off to the garage at the opposite side of the house. How is it that you've that you can listen to all this practice, 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 and then the performance? And and I realized that I'd been training myself without necessarily uh, completely being aware of what I was doing, but I was training myself to listen to these things because I would sit in on the, perf- on the, the trainings that, that Stuart was just describing and observe what I could discern of the differences in the sounds produced by when uh, Stuart's teacher would point to some, some feature of what was happening in his body or his mind. And, and it was, you know, I, I I have found that to be an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting um, uh, activity and commitment. And I hadn't I hadn't realized it because I hadn't formalized it as a commitment in quite this quite the way that I have with other aspects of practice. And yet, at this moment in this conversation with Stuart's colleague, I realized, oh, I actually have made a commitment to pay attention in this way to this music that I never quite formalized. And I think. It's very easy to, from just what you've said right there, Rob, to establish some pretty uh, good parallels with what happens in meditation practice. Absolutely. Which which you you could regard as a very similar sort of training. Mm -hmm. You're you're training to attune to a a different set of uh, experiences or subtleties or what have you. But it's the same sort of thing. It it does raise the question, I'm interested how you see this, uh, that... I could, you know, I I would I wouldn't even have a clue about the level of subtlety um, which I can appreciate now in musical expression without working with my teacher and having someone who not only is skilled in the pr- production of the sound but also extremely skilled in the conveying of insight into how to uh, uh, produce it for oneself. And so when I look at in uh, meditation practice or spiritual practice. Um, the idea that a technique in and of itself is going to help one without some feedback from a someone who has experience uh, in what that technique is intended to open one up to seems futile. Well, I think that's a very good point. Uh, the In the modern Buddhist traditions... Uh, the only one that has built in very regular feedback. Well, maybe not the only one, but it was Rinzai Zen. Yeah. Uh, 
Soto Zen had some feedback, but not nearly as with the frequency. But in Rinzai Zen, you go into a session, you have four interviews a day. And it's it's very formalized, etc. But basically, it is that exactly that kind of attunement. And, you know, in the beginning, you're just like, what is he talking about? <laughs> and you have to do an awful lot of scrambling on your own. But the whole idea is is, is to start attuning to things but, that way. But the, So this begs the question for me of the what we started with, the deity practice that, that you well, were pointing to. Yeah, so when I started teaching retreats, one of the things that I did, which was not standard practice in retreats at that point, uh, is uh, I would make a point of interviewing everybody every day, mm-hmm. just once, because uh, I was... You know, there were longer interviews, and, uh, et cetera. And uh, it was astonishing how helpful it was. The reason I did this is because I had seen people struggle with really minor points of technique in meditation, which could be cleared up in a two- or three-minute conversation. And they'd be struggling with it for six months because they couldn't find a way. Yeah. And so... I. And people found that just getting this over a three or four day retreat, which is not a long retreat, they would find just having that, okay, here's where I put my effort or I put my effort this way. There would be a very significant shift in their quality of sitting because they were getting the feedback. And I think that is uh, very, very important. Uh, And more and more people uh, have moved in that direction in the West, which I think is a good thing. Uh, Now, in the context of deity practice, uh, well, uh, somewhat depends on the ability of the teacher. Uh, You know, I I know of teachers whose minds were so clear that they could sense where you were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if you didn't say anything and give you direction accordingly. Uh, you can also uh, glean a great deal from what people report about their experience in deity practice and then give them guidance or Mm -hmm. direction from that. But like, uh, I mean, sorcery is a skill. Uh, There's a very strong skill component to Mm -hmm. it. Uh, And skills only develop productively when there is some kind of feedback. Now, as you go on in practice, you become more and more capable of generating self-feedback. Sure. But you don't... That, but uh, but no one starts out there, pretty much. Well, very few musicians start out there, don't they? Exactly. I mean, I, 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 people say, well, I mean, I've been asked several times about do-it-yourself Adriana, and I'm going like, this is kind of nuts, because Mozart, Bach, uh, you know, the, the really greatest composers of the West and also jazz musicians, they all studied with somebody. Yeah. Well, visual artists as well. I mean, yeah. you can extend it further. You know. Yeah. And, and so this idea of do-it-yourself, I think, is a, a kind of very strange idea. Well, it's a very um, uh, satisfying one to an individualistic culture like uh, the the one that we're in. Because then oh, you I don't think it's satisfying at all. Well, it's satisfying at a surface level, not not at a deep I, level. I actually think it is a systemic denial of reality. Um, 
Well, I, I completely agree with that. Well, go, and, uh, and nevertheless, uh, people seem to be liking to deny reality <laughs> well, I mean, on many more. levels in our culture I mean, right now. Say more about that. I mean, you mean in the sense that there are there are hierarchies of skill which are essential to... Uh, well, the whole whole notion of being an individual is a denial of reality. Well, there's that. <laughs> there's that. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're a product of our birth, our family, our culture, and things like that. There's no getting away from that. And the, the, the idea that we do it all by ourselves is just nonsense. Uh, and especially now that more and more is coming out about uh, the, the value of networks, if you're born into or your family is an immersed network, you're going to be able to uh, go much, much further than people who come into that at another stage and have to build their own networks. That's right. well established. Uh, it used to be called old boys clubs or old girls clubs or what have you, but you know. But it also explains why uh, it's it's so common for children of artists to be artists or children of uh, you know uh, yeah. doctors to be doctors. You know, there's a there's kind of a built-in not only influence uh, and but also connections and and just you you have a much clearer idea of what do I do to be successful there. Yes, and you also have all of that knowledge, but you kind of absorb just through through yeah. growing up, uh, and uh, you know, and, and you get the same thing in spiritual circles. I mean, Tuchel Origins family is this has produced all kinds of, you know, high quality teachers and, and right. mystics, and you know, keep it in the family. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, one one of the questions that. Uh, um, you kind of put out to uh, discuss uh, in this conversation is the uh, uh, the question of reason in the uh, <laughs> mystical quest, and I w I'm sort of circling back to that because we we kind of touched the edges of this one uh, earlier in the conversation, particularly when we're talking about ontology and uh, yeah, and we also touched on it a few conversations ago, right? And um, you know, I I, I think the uh, I've been reflecting on that question since you kind of proposed it in an email, and for me, the uh, we have to kind of have an agreement of what reason means. And I think the the problem with the word reason is that it's been conflated with a particular uh, viewpoint in uh, modern uh, society, uh, particularly a, a, a logical positivist viewpoint or a a kind of materialist viewpoint, and so a lot of what goes for reason is a, a kind of quasi scientific viewpoint which i don't i don't particularly accept myself uh you know i i see reason much more simply as uh like the tools of critical thinking and the the, the tools of the ability to you know pose you know the ability to relate to possibilities as uh, hypotheses and then test them in your experience, and then uh, uh, you utilize them provisionally or reject them based off of what your experience is. And to me, that that kind of um, I call it empirical pr approach or a positive approach, if you will, is I think a, a useful guide in mystical pursuit because there is such a tendency of mind to project upon experience and to uh, qualify experience with some sort of uh, conceptual overlay that the ability to slow that process down or to uh, suspend that process 
and to be scrupulous about the nature of your experience before you adopt particular uh, truth claims about what that experience consists of, I think, is an important ally in deepening one's uh, mystical experience. So if I understand you correctly, uh, your view is that reason, uh, in the way that you've defined it, is a... uh is a means of uh, discerning, uh, discernment. Yeah, yeah. so I, I mean, I don't know this for sure because I don't know if the technical term holds up, but when I see terms in uh, um, both uh, Buddhist and Hindu literature about, like, buddhi and, you know, the quality of mind, like, or even Buddha nature, I, there's something about that clarity and that discernment that, uh, to use a term, rings true for me in the sense of uh, that that is something that, I find an ally, and that's what I tend to think of when I use a term like mystical positivism. It's really the bringing of that uh, ability of discernment to the deepening first-person experience. Well, I think you've hit on several important points. The uh, one that jumps out at me right away, is, is you, and I agree with you, is that there is a tendency uh, in the human mind, I guess, uh, that when something arises, uh, to conceptualize it and make it into a concept. Mm-hmm. And, and we just do this. And as we know very well when it comes to probably artistic practice, but certainly myst- mystical practice, that tendency to conceptualize experience is a, is a problem because as soon as you conceptualize it, you basically killed it. It's mm-hmm. become an object in experience. It's no longer alive. Yeah, just just uh, to tie to our... Uh, um analogy about music another piece of instruction from my uh, music teacher is if you listen to the note uh it descends as you're as you're trying to produce as you're playing so he says pay attention to your body you know but but and then he'll he'll catch me so you you were listening don't don't listen to the note don't listen to what you're playing Don't, don't listen to the to the effect that's yeah exactly it, it's because you're focusing attention on the result not right. on the method right. exactly I, yeah oh boy I, that is really important when it yeah. comes to meditation uh, yeah I've, I've actually used that to, <laughs> analogy to, to someone uh, who is uh, for meditation and it, it's like uh, yeah because it's it's the difference between identifying with a thought or uh, seeing a thought yeah uh, and and as soon as you move into that focusing on the result, there's a, this appraisal that takes you right out of right. what you're actually trying to do. Yeah. The other, another thing that you, what you were saying reminded me of is Parmenides' um, three rules of thought of thinking, which were uh, A is A. Um, I can't remember the law of identity uh, and uh, yeah. law of. Uh, uh, a is uh, is not B or something it's, it's like that. It's like either A or not A. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then there's the law of the excluded middle. middle. But I, I can't remember them but, uh, exactly. But what is interesting is these were regarded, developed by Parmenides as rules for thinking, how you manage your thoughts so you didn't end up in nonsense. Somewhere along the line, and I think it may, may have been as far back as the Greeks, um, they started to be applied to things and to experience. And they break down completely yeah. there because uh, A can be not A. Like, you know, a cup can be something else. 
It can, it can, it, it can be a weapon. Uh, it can be uh, use it to raise something. It, it doesn't have to be a cup. And, we, uh, and so, and, and one of the problems that we we have in our, our, our and not to mention emotions. Emotions, you know, we think of emotions as you you know as one value it's either this emotion or that thing like that but actually emotions are extremely complex and the same emotion can feel very very differently depending on where we're coming from mm-hmm. so uh that so so I, I i what you're saying about uh using reason uh to be able to uh refine your experience this i think is the appropriate use of reason Right in in mystical practice. In in some ways, it's almost it, it's it's refining in the sense of uh, uh, you, you need to use reason to uh, keep yourself from uh, overlaying your, on your experience. Yeah, yeah. That 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 way of using reason, I I agree. I and I'm very glad to hear you say that because I I haven't understood that from you before. Uh, yeah, I mean it's my conceit that I interpret positive positivism that way hence the the name of mystical positivism because I think you're probably the only one who does uh, probably but (laughs) when you you google mystical positivist I'm the only thing that shows up (laughs) and that says a lot on today's web well you're you're quite right so you you, you staked out territory there exactly good for you so what other questions well I I want to just draw uh, one other um, potential distinction here yeah, we got about five minutes. Okay, yeah. So, break. so um, as I've been thinking, because uh, Stuart mentioned you uh, circulated some proposed topics for our conversation today, and this was one of them. And I realized uh, I wasn't thinking of reason in um, using the definition that that Stuart was, but um, I. Uh, what occurred to me that is that there are two uses of reason, and one would essentially be um, my second one would be what you just established a, mo- a moment ago uh, in agreement with it with one another. But the other thing it seems to me that um, I think I think I've used reason defined a little more conventionally is that uh, I appreciate that the that reason can be used to demonstrate that the assumptions about how things work in life, in one's own personal life, but in life in general, can actually be undermined by, by a, a uh, skillful use of reason. That is to say, um, there's ways in which um, a materialist perspective, for example, can productively be um, questioned and room can be created for the possibility of a non-materialist um, influence on life and our and influence on our experience. And it seems to me that that's... Um, it's sort of before you get involved in the mystical quest. Yes. Well, in certain sense, you're talking. I mean, Buddhist terms. You're talking about Nagarjuna here. Well, since since I've never read Nagarjuna, you're going to have to enlighten me. Well, arguably, Nagarjuna's contribution was to show that any categorical statement about reality was self-contradictory. Okay. And 
uh, and it's precisely what you're pointing to. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, and this actually goes back to the question of authority. Uh, it, it, mm. Who's that? Anything, when you say it is this way, mm-hmm. then life is too complex. Somebody's going to come along and say, "Well, no, actually, it isn't this way." Now, the uh, in popular medium, the movie that I think just illustrates what Nagarjun is trying to do so brilliantly is 12 Angry Men, the original ah. version with Henry Vonda. Right. You have these 12 men, jury, and it seems like a wrap-up. It's a hot day. They all want to get out of there as quickly as possible. And Henry Vonda's character says, no, I have some questions. And everybody's really angry with them, etc. But they go around one by one. And I've watched the movie several times because I think it is so well written. Mm-hmm. Initially, you're left with the impression that Henry Fonda's character refuted everybody, but it isn't. That isn't what he does when you actually watch it. He questions what they are saying to the point that they start to question it themselves, and then he stops. Right. Because that's all he says. He, that's he all just he has said, to do. I have a question here. And when a person starts to have their own questions, then he stops. And this is exactly what Nagarjun is doing in uh, his work. Uh, it's what Shanti Dev is doing in the um, ninth chapter of the Bodhicharya which is all about the perfection of wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's taking, you know, what is an authority? And somebody says, well, this is an authority. And then Shanti Dev asks him a few questions. Oh, well, maybe it's not that way. And so doing exactly the same thing. And I think I agree with you completely. This is an appropriate use of reason in Mystical Path, is that it brings us to what in Zen, of course, is called don't know mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and it frees us from the tyranny of conceptualization. And, and I think that actually that, that's a, a nice, a different way of expressing uh, exactly what we were just talking about. That, that's when I, what I was talking about with reason. It's, not, it's, it's the reason to call into question any, any conclusion that one draws, such mm-hmm. that one can stay free from a commitment to a conclusion. But this kind of that method only works with a certain kind of person. That well, we will that. have to take that question up after the break, exactly because uh, I, I cannot I cannot let that one go. <laughs> All right, well, That's well, you're going to have to for the next five to seven minutes. On, on that note, we need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to the Mystical Positivist. I'm your host Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Ken McLeod. Ken learned Tibetan, translated for his teacher, Kala Rinpoche, and has published a number of highly regarded books about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, Trackless Path. Ken is working on another book about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma and is the founder of Unfettered Mind, an organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on the show are from a CD called Bach the Cello Suites, performed by Angela East. This piece is the Saraban movement from the Sonata Number no. 6 in D major, BWV 1012.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Rob Schmidt, director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Ken McLeod. Ken learned Tibetan, translated for his teacher, Kalo Rinpoche, and has published a number of highly regarded books on the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, Trackless Path. Ken is working on another book about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma and is founder of Unfettered Mind, an organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. Well, Stuart, at the conclusion of the previous hour, uh, you uh, you interpreted a statement of Ken's as him throwing down a gauntlet. To you. Uh, I, I actually I, I wouldn't quite put it that way. I, he he, he uh, we were talking about the utilization of reason or the method of using reason as a way. We could say as a skillful means to avoid uh, identifying with a particular conceptual uh, representation about one's experience such that you keep the door open for both freshness and deeper inquiry. And Ken made the comment as we were uh, uh, closing the hour that this practice won't work for everybody. And um, we talked a little bit uh, during the uh, break. Uh, uh, I was at first I was uh, appalled by the statement, <laughs> but, <laughs> but on further discussion. But so uh, I just you know you were you were speaking about uh, what what types in your experience what types um, uh, really can utilize that practice well and and which types actually not so much. Well, I'm very cautious about typing people, but. In traditional uh, Buddhism, uh, you have the three basic emotional reactions, attraction, aversion, and how, what I translate as indifference, which is a kind of ignoring or just not seeing, mm-hmm. blindness. And uh, over, the, over the centuries, uh, it's come to be recognized that some people, some practices work, or some types of practices work, with people whose primary primary way of relating to the world is aversion, you know, mm-hmm. just putting up defenses or attacking things. And we all know people like that. Right. Uh, other people are very much more embracing and just want to include everything. Uh, and those would be more like uh, desire types or attraction types. And uh, then other people um, just are either very proud, or they wander. They're they're in their own world, or they they can't seem not to be able to understand things. And those would be regarded as the indifference types. Um, people are working on instinct, mm-hmm. you might say. And uh, so the kind of practice that. Uh, you're describing is usually one that is uh, recognized as uh, being something that people who have a uh, uh, is a little too strong to say this, but I can't think of the right word. Uh, but uh, an aversive re- relationship with, with experience, so they're they're questioning it, and yeah. que- questioning it is is a form uh, or can certainly seem like a form of attack. And so, you know, you put up something and they say, yeah, well, how do you know that? And they start asking questions. Now, they're, they're driven by something, so you give them the sequence of questions uh, about something that they are, say, attached to or uh, very concerned with, which leave, leaves, leaves them not being able to say anything. 
That's a that's that's a great practice technique for them because they end up just as you said, just letting go of all of these things. I mean, because they're forced to, but through through their own questioning, and they're like, and then and then they're just sitting. They've exhausted the conceptual mind. Yeah, and now they're just sitting open, and all kinds of new possibilities can arise. Uh, people who are attracted, uh, who, who are attracted, and drawn to experience, and just embracing it. These generally devotional practices work much uh, better for them. And uh, uh, in different types, uh, really uh, very precise attention to experience, so that they actually increase the, the attention they're putting into their lives, hmm. is uh, is probably the best. Well, let me let me. I, I'm I, I like the set of distinctions you you've just made, and I'm wondering just to get back to the uh, the deity practice oh, thing. No, he's plotting. Uh, no, no, I'm not. No plotting, or or the plot just emerged a moment ago in my head because because I'm I'm really cu- I've always this is I know virtually nothing about uh, Vajrayana uh, except at a, a very broad conceptual level uh, and and because of my relationship to deities and saints throughout my life that I described somewhat in the conversation in the first hour I am fascinated to know how the Tibetans configure given this this set of distinctions that you just made about skillful means essentially um, I'm I'm wondering where does deity practice fall in one of those uh, categories that you just sort of uh, Uh, elucidated? Stuart and I were discussing this in the break and uh, I I think that uh, attraction types, desire types probably have an easier time with deity well, practice. And that's what I was wondering because when you said that that would be more devotional and yeah. so um, and so and so that is part of a standard way in which Vajrayana practitioners would would work. But uh, it's certainly not uh, it, it, it doesn't exclude the others by any stretch of the imagination mm-hmm. uh, and uh, <clears throat> At the level of Vajrayana, it wasn't. You would find that certain certain approaches work better for some people than others, and deity practice is such a rich and complex practice. Okay. There's so many facets to it that any of those three types or any other type is probably going to find a way into it okay. uh, through that, because you can uh, you, you can get into uh, visualizing or imagining you know, that you are this deity and, and generating that with a, you know extraordinary clarity. If that mm-hmm. you know, another is to deeply internalize the symbolism that mm. uh, uh, that is uh, uh, which the deity's form is imbued with. You know, generate Z, for instance, it's four arms representing the four immeasurables and six kinds of jewels representing the six perfections. It just goes on and on. The stuff. I mean. The mandala, every aspect of the mandala refers to some aspect of the whole Buddhist path. You know, mm-hmm. Just incredibly rich uh, symb- symbolism. Then uh, others, uh, and this might be, yeah, actually this would be appropriate for the uh, indifference types. Uh, they, would, they might focus on just the feeling of being the deity. What is that like? Mm. And... Uh, and that that in itself will take you, you know, where you, you you let the spirit of the deity take you over completely, and and you know, oh, now you've got a different way of relating to the world. 
So you've come to understand that the ways you relate to the world are, in some sense, arbitrary. And that that frees you from the tyranny of one particular identity. Well, thank you. Uh, that, that that does help um, because I've I've talked with Tibetan practitioners, and and I, I suspect that the individuals I've spoken with, um, as I think back, um, would would tend to be in one of these one of your three t- general types, and so they would tend to Speak respond. From there, yeah. Yes, respond from that place. Yeah. So. No, I mean it's. it's uh, it, it, it's very rich, and, and I, I think it's so rich that I think almost everybody has their own experience of it, mm-hmm. and uh, and thus and this goes back to again to topics we've touched on earlier today. Uh, this repositioning, I, I think that uh, you know, do any two people play the mus- a musical instrument the same way? Not especially. The better they get, uh, no, 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 <laughs> and, and so. <clears throat> Why do we make everybody try to practice the same way? Uh, and uh, this uh, scope for individual expression, which can be very, you know, uh, uh, same with music. If a person says, I'm going to play it my way, they will never really learn how to play. Right. They have to go through a process where a lot of their own ways and wants and things like that are being systematically dismantled but once that's been dismantled and they've really learned and deeply instilled technique then they can give uh, begin to give expression to something else which comes from a completely different place not from all the old habitual stuff and it's a very similar process to what takes place i think in spiritual practice yeah i mean i've, I've certainly had that impression even in the tibetan tradition uh, looking at uh, uh tonka <coughs> painting that you know, very rigid forms, very precise symbolism, you know, yeah. uh, and yet when you look at a, a piece by a master and a piece by a student, you know, it's, it's like... Uh, Night and day. It, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and it's clear that in the form that uh, there's a great deal of expression and freedom. Yes. Um, when you really examine it, both will be completely precise iconograph- iconographically according to the the, the uh, measures uh, and you know because the things they're very very precise all, the, all these precise ratios and exactly right. and yet within that very rigid form just as Stuart was saying you see a tonka by a master and it has a totally different quality and and you could not measure it yeah and I think you know that's again like with, we've talked about that with music yeah and um I think we, I mean, that uh, actually it comes up for me when we talk to our friend Jim about poetry. That that's yes. why that's why he likes uh, uh, forms in poetry as opposed to free verse because there's something about wrestling with the form and finding freedom within a form that is uh, useful work. Well, I had a small experience of that when I was translating a short text called Mind Training in Eight Verses. And uh, I tried to translate it many years ago uh, because it's a very short text. It's like 32 lines. Uh, but I just couldn't see how I could translate it into English. But then I needed to translate it for something other, and I looked up at the translations, and as usual, I was just totally dissatisfied with everybody else's translation. See, I'm an anchor type. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and so I started to translate it, uh, and then about, uh, and I, I got through everything and went, this is strange. 
several of the verses were almost in meter, hmm. but not all of them. So, and I was having really a hard time with a couple of verses. Uh, like I couldn't get the English right. Uh, it didn't sound right. And so I went, okay, let's see if I can just uh, put all of the ver- all of them into the same metered verse. And it was very. What happened is that as I did that, I had to look for different words, words that I wouldn't usually look for, because I had I, I was restricted to the syllables. Mm. So I used deem. Now, how often do we use deem today? Yeah. You know, I deem them to be this or something like that. We can look it up if we have time. Uh, and then there was another phrase which is very famous. We uh, it's usually translated as. I take defeat for myself, and I give victory to others. And it struck me, no. One, I, 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 give didn't work for me because it was only one syllable. I needed two. And I realized, we, we never say in English, I give you the victory. You might say, I award you the victory or something like that. And so I found that the exercise of actually putting it into metered verse moved me more into English. Hmm. and away from you know uh, the connection with the Tibetan language. It was just as accurate. But now these were English words in an English rhythm, etc., etc. And so the, these using restrictions, I think, is... Restrict, restrictions are where the art comes. If there are no restrictions, there's no art. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see that in so many ways. I mean, uh, even working with a teacher, to me, is the willful exception, uh, accepting of a restriction... So there's going to be someone, quite a few. Yeah, is, is someone who's going to be, you know, basically telling you to do things uh, at the moments where you least want to do them, or don't do things yeah. that you would do. Yeah, in those or, yeah. So, typically. so, what is the aversion in our culture to this? Where does that come from? Well, I mean, because I've run into this in a lot of different areas that people don't don't want to go through that process yet. It's immensely valuable. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, and uh, it's funny. I, I, I see in our culture that, um, for whatever reason, uh, things about living or how to live, everyone thinks they're an we, expert. We have to throw this to the anthropologist because yeah. he's an expert. <laughs> Don't know mind, my friends. <laughs> I'm not letting you get away with that. Oh. <laughs> Explain, explain our culture to us. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Uh, well, that's what the sociologists do. <laughs> but in all seriousness, what are your thoughts on that aversion to... What, what is a difficult process of, uh, of actually being trained? Where uh, I, you, you, you submit to the higher, the, the greater experience and deeper knowledge of somebody else. Um, I I, um, I don't know how accurate this is, but what the the response that comes up to me is, uh, it sounds it. I'm phrasing it too simplistically here, but parenting styles, basically, very early ways of relating to other human beings in the world, um, have an effect on people and I don't see I'm, I mean I'll tell you a, 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 a short anecdote I was in a, a 
optometrist's office waiting for my appointment. And a mother came in with four young boys, like around 12, I mean, like 10 to, 10 to 13 or something like that. And, and they sat down in the waiting room as well. And my experience of boys that age, especially a little group of them like that, is at least one, if not two, are going to be all over the, all over the place um, and looking to get into trouble, um, looking to uh, alleviate boredom or whatever, whatever it is, whatever mechanical thing they're operating from. But this set of kids were not in any way, I, 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 I gathered absolutely no sense that they were being controlled or repressed. And yet, and they were very active in terms of interacting with one another, but not in a way that disrupted anybody else in the waiting room. That's remarkable right there. And number two, when there was a moment when, um, when there was some kind of um, a little a little greater energy happening among them, uh, the mother spoke just a few words, and it was not uh, a negative expression, but it's it was it was like the energy went back into a more harmonious configuration just just by snapping her fingers it it was like and i was and i and it was one of the most remarkable demonstrations to me of how how important it is to have a rich parental relationship and unfortunately our culture today is almost uh, uniformly structured to prevent that kind of relationship developing because parents have the habit of putting kids in front of a screen and ignoring them or ignoring them um, in, a, in a variety of other ways. And when kids don't have that kind of sense that they're being seen and responded to and listened to and um, and where there's a safe there's a, a lack of a clear container that creates a sense of safety then other habits develop yeah they start they want attention they need they, they and they absolutely need attention yeah. and they're not getting it and that creates a set of ways of being in the world hab- habitual ways of being in the world that i think undermine this this whole um, natural human capacity to interact with a teacher in the way that the way that you're describing. Yeah. I, I, Thank you, Rob. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I get that. I mean, I, I, I don't know that that connects for me because I, I, my sense of how I would be. I, well, first of all, when I was working with my teacher, um, he was. Uh, very adept, just like, just like my music teacher had seen where I uh, lose the thread of uh, tension. Uh, my 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 spiritual teacher was very adept at catching me at moments when I at least wanted to be caught, when I was in a uh, habit of inertial mind, you know, doing what I wanted to be doing and not wanting to be disturbed. And I think 
We well, all. How is, how is that different though from the mother that I was describing? Um, I guess she, I guess, she was attuned, attuned yeah. to those kids. Yeah, I I, I guess. Well, so it appeared to me. Anyway. Yeah, I guess. I the, the issue I have is that when it's about stuff in the world, I think people are more like you know, even like people have more of a notion in this society. If like I'm going to go, you know, study a language, so I have a language teacher. I'm going to go study music, so I have a guitar teacher. People have more of a sense of when it's transactional, like I'm I'm going to get something out of it. I don't think there's as uh, just as mature a sense in society writ large of shaping the contours of one's inner flow of mind as being uh, uh, something that is uh, available to be done, can be done, or of value. I think that is also a very legitimate point. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Which, which kind of gets back to your question about, you know, how do we talk about the spiritual program or the spiritual pursuit in a modern cultural sense? Because I don't think there's... There's not really clear understanding about. Uh, there's certainly very little understanding about mysticism, but that may always be the case in most yeah. societies. Uh, let me give you another example, which I found. Uh, well, so in the Tibetan tradition, in Vajrayana particularly, uh, many put, people would say that the central practice is not deity practice. It's a practice called Guru Yoga, which mm-hmm. basically is union with teacher union. You could right. say. And the way that you practice, do that practice, is you pray to your teacher, and living or or dead, but right. you know, in many cases, living teacher. Well, we're not used to pray, praying to a living being in our culture, so it's mm-hmm. that's right out. <laughs> and but but the, the the practice of prayer actually has been very important for me. Uh, and uh, I don't come to it easily. Uh, <clears throat> I've had to work at it, but it has been—it's been a very important part of my my practice, I guess. And uh, and I've learned how to relate to it. I think I relate to it fairly deeply. So I saw a book by Thich Nhat Hanh actually on prayer, and uh, I thought, oh, it'd be interesting to read because I've done a couple of retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh. And I've been deeply impressed with his ability to take quite abstruse aspects of the Dharma and make them come completely alive. Hmm. It's, I mean, uh, the couple of presentations that I saw on some Abbey Dharma stuff, I went, wow, that was you know, really good. And <clears throat> so I read this book, and I was completely dismayed. Because this goes back to your comment about materialism. He, the whole book revolves around the question, does prayer work? Which is a completely utilitarian, materialistic, yeah. transactional relation. And it's not... And so it's, I'm probably going to write an article now for Tricycle or whatever uh, saying prayer does not work. <laughs> <laughs> because... and Despite your relationship to it. Well, it, no. It, well, prayer does not work and then in parentheses in the thing, way that you think it does. Right. Because it, people think, okay, if I pray for this, will I get it? This is not how prayer works in spiritual practice or mystical practice. Well, we have we have a a, a, a good friend, uh, Regina Saran, who wrote a book called Praying Dangerously, and and you know, as in many such books, um, 
and others that I that I could point to. You know, there are the different types of prayer, um, and I think the main one you were pointing to as problematic here is suppl- supplicatory prayer. Supplicatory prayer or, or petitionary prayer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where where it is essentially a transaction. It, you're attempting to establish a transactional relationship with an all or yeah. a, a powerful powerful energy the, or yeah, being. And, and, it's and, like, and, like Amazon Prime. <laughs> Please, <laughs> uh, you just couldn't resist, could you? No, so. well, it was either that or Google. <laughs> <laughs> that one I can relate to. <laughs> uh, but you see, that in the Catholic tradition, you have five uh, forms of prayer. I can't remember all, and the petitionary prayer or supplicatory prayer is the lowest one. Right, and it's it's where people start. Right. Uh, but I was re- really thrown that Tignathan, who I regard as a very capable and uh, you know, quite deep teacher, mm-hmm. just stunned that he dealt with prayer at that at that level when it is so much deeper and so much richer practice. And uh, I mean, to me, <clears throat> I've come to regard prayer as reaching out, mm-hmm. and and you, you you come to this to prayer when your own capacities and your own capabilities have been completely exhausted. And so it is actually a way of letting go of yourself. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you put it interestingly, because I was going going to say it's um, the other main category of which there are subcategories, I guess. Um, To me, I've thought of in terms of uh, basically opening yourself to influence from outside. Yeah, that's a little different from what I was saying. I I, I agree, but I'm but I'm but t- tell me more about what you were saying then, so I can uh, understand this more clearly. Well, prayer for me, and I'm, I'm I'm speaking quite personally here. I'm moved to pray and pray sincerely. I'm thinking of Claudius here in Hamlet. Uh-huh. prays but he knows he isn't praying sincerely because mm-hmm. he doesn't really mean it but I can pray very sincerely when I know that I can't do anything uh, interesting and you know yeah that I, I, I that that rings for me in the sense of uh, you know there are times my the most powerful moments of what I would call prayer is, is the you know the where I feel most helpless. Exactly, that's right. And yeah. and, and so really you you reach out, but what are you reaching out to? Who knows? I, but it's that gesture of reaching out that I think is the essence of prayer. It's funny, uh, my, uh, you know, I had I had uh, lots of training in supplicatory and other forms of uh, Catholic prayer, but I think in childhood the the time when I really prayed was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I'm sitting in bed, and I'm, you know, listening, I'd been listening to the TV in the other room, I was 10 years old, I think, or maybe 9 years old, uh, 9 years old. And um, and I had this understanding that, that, there, that there was this thing called prayer, and I'm listening to, I didn't really understand what nuclear destruction was, but I understood that my parents were very disturbed and agitated and um, 
And so I prayed for a long period of time for a nine-year-old uh, laying in bed, listening to all this stuff, and the, and and prayed to something bigger um, yeah. to help relieve this situation, which I hadn't, which I I couldn't tell my parents <laughs> to get over it or something. <laughs> I didn't. That that wouldn't have even occurred to me. But you could tell your parents were upset, and that. Oh my happened. gosh! Yeah. Yeah. In a in a. In, in a realm where they felt helpless too. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So, our teacher's uh, teacher uh, wrote a book called Prayer Absolute, and and, and mm-hmm. um, his formulation of uh, what he considered the highest form of prayer was uh, to offer energy to uh, relieve the suffering of the absolute. <laughs> I think you better expound on this for your listeners. <laughs> well, it, it's a it's a kind of a paradox, uh, and it, it, I don't know that I have a answer because. Um, well, you can you can just describe what what that means in well, greater detail. Yeah, well, so in the the absolute, of course, is the um, uh, ultimate being. You know, call it God, call it you know the uh, the the being of beingness, if you will, and. Uh, to say that the absolute suffers, though, is paradoxical because we think of suffering as something that is a uniquely human uh, phenomenon. But well, I have a different question. Okay. Does the absolute care that it suffers? Well, that's a good one. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I, I uh, uh, in, I mean, so, in I, some I, aspects, yes. That's, yeah, that's I, 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 I was going to say, yeah. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of like the you know, the analogy that comes up is, uh, you know, like if you you know wake up and you're all stiff in the morning, you know, I, there's there's one level in which you can be present to the the pain in the same way that you're present to the the uh, uh, pleasure at other times, but at the same time you still want to stretch and kind of, kind of be more limber. And suffering of the absolute, I think, is a, a condition when, uh, in a fragmented uh, uh, manifestation, when there is lack, when there is not the same turning of attention back uh, to the reality of the absolute, I think there there may be a kind of a stress or a tension that. Uh, so what you're putting me in mind of here is. Uh, Suffering is an indication of imbalance, and then there's a natural movement to restore balance, or mat- natural movement in the direction of balance. Hmm. It's never actually restored. Yeah, I, I, I would. Yes, I would say that. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know it, that so there, there's a naturalness to, or there's a, a. So so the invitation to prayer is an invitation to um, be part of the ameliorative to restore response. balance. Yeah, to restore yeah. balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some way, you know, when you, there are Which traditions. I hadn't thought of before, but I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. You know, when people have, uh, um, we, uh, in particularly in Hindu uh, traditions, often they'll just say the name of God, like Ram. Um, right. And uh, I have, we have some friends who actually embody that practice and you'll be in the middle of a conversation they'll you know be talking talking and they go rom rom you know <laughs> and and yet it it's it's like it's a turning of a, it's it's kind of uh turning your attention back you're reminding yourself of rom and, and reminding yourself of uh, this point that you you made earlier uh, that we've been stressing of 
that I'm not in control. And um, and turning your attention to that which is larger than you. At least is that, that's is that yeah. what's going on when they're doing wrong. Yeah, I, I think I, I think so. That's what that's what I'm picking up. I mean, when when I've read I, about when saints, who, saints who do this practice, it's it, it's like you're you're always God, always the Father. You know, you're just you're returning your attention to that as opposed to the concerns of your small psychological world. Right. I mean, I'm caught. I'm, interested I guess uh, they'll do this in the middle of a conversation so what's yes. happening in the conversation um, that, 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 that elicits that I, well I think I mean first to be fair um, these are peop- people we've known for a while and who uh, understand that um, you know we had we had uh, a, a a relationship of mutual respect with their teacher, and so I think they can they can bring their practice into a conversation with us because we are not just an ordinary context yeah, a, for them. It's to. not it's not like a Tourette's outburst or something like that. <laughs> I wasn't thinking okay. of that. But 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 it's more like it's more like if there's a pause in the conversation, you might you might just kind of as a way of like you know it'd be almost like saying yes yes or something. It's like Ram. It's oh, kind of like an, actually, it, it, that that is some of the valence. The yeah. ye- the the um, saying yes to life. Yeah. You know, um, that is definitely some yeah. of the yeah. some wrong, of the emotional wrong, yeah. valence that I that I would pick up from that, which is very. I mean, it, at first, honestly, I was a little like, "What the hell's going on here?" And um, um, but then I came I I came to realize that that was that was. Uh, at least for this one particular individual who uses this practice more than uh, some other folks. Who also happens to be a brilliant Tibetan uh, Tonka painter. Yeah. Um, Just to tie that in. Um, he's um, uh, quite the passionate devotee. And um, and I think it's part of his expression of, of his passion, of his longing for for the divine to do this and and when when you when you it didn't take me long to realize that that's what's going on mm-hmm. uh, it's not it's not out of, it's never never feels out of place okay yeah so so it's, it's not i mean because there's ways people can do things like that where it just kind of feels like it's out of place or disconnected with what's happening and it's, or, or, it's, it's or, not like that yeah, or it feels very uh, contrived yeah exactly right right oh, it's like look at how holy i am or something like that it's well, not the, like that there's the virtue signaling also but, right yeah. right virtue signaling i like that okay. phrase oh you haven't yeah. heard this phrase I don't oh, know that I oh, have. Really? Oh, you, 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 we, we, you're not woke enough then. To, uh, <laughs> I plead guilty. <laughs> so, um, you know, so in, in terms of, um, you know, we just got a couple minutes left. So, um, this, this, so you are you uh, going to be writing articles like for Tricycle about this 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 question of uh, configuring the spiritual in the modern world or is that do you feel like that's what your book is really trying to tackle well that's a very interesting question Stuart uh, as I've as this book is taking shape I realize that in its own small way it is 
talking about, uh, or I'm writing a lot about, you know, repositioning uh, religion and practice in people, in a practitioner's psyche. Because when it's over here, you run into all kinds of problems, but if you rearrange things and put it here, then something quite productive yeah. can develop. Uh, I don't think I have the uh, articulation or the cognitive uh, skills to uh, formulate that at a level that might go further out into the society. Maybe somebody else will pick it up from my book and do that. Uh, you know, but, but there, I think there are a lot of people like that who, who can write at a certain level, but. Yeah, it can be difficult to write at another. It, it's the question. Uh, I mean, I, the questions besides just you uh, introducing it as a you know topic that we might touch on today. Um, I was talking to someone that I, um, a, a colleague at work who I uh, kind of form a, I'm in a kind of formal mentor relationship with, but most of what we talk about now we're, we're long past the the active period now it's like we get together once a month and we t- usually talk about meditation and he was asking about a you know, like a book on like what is spiritual you know what what you know uh because i've talked about the distinction of like a practice uh, a religion a, a technique and a spiritual path and I realize that I, I, I was trying to find, I was trying to think of, is there a book out there that actually kind of just says, what is a spiritual path? And I, I'm not, I can't, maybe you know of something, but I haven't quite found the right articulation for the modern age of what constitutes a, you know, for some, here's someone who's a business person in uh, Ohio who's, uh, uh, doesn't have probably a lot of support or, uh, around him besides yoga studios and things like that for, a spiritual path. How do you answer that question to someone like that? You know, what is spiritual? Yeah, what is spiritual? What is uh, and 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 what is a spiritual path? Is it the question yeah. I'm hearing? Yeah, and is there is there a spiritual path available that doesn't require people to you know buy into uh, uh, things that are sort of problematic uh, in in the modern mind? Well, I mean, those are two. Those are two, yeah. Those are okay. different questions. Um, I think this is a case of universals and particulars. Yeah. Uh, we 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 handled universals quite well in English, but that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's an uh, that's a succinct uh, statement, and I like and, it. And uh, because. I mean, what a lot of people do uh, is try to connect people. Uh, well, let me answer it this way. Uh, a spiritual, uh, what is, you know what is spiritual by what inspires awe in you. Mm. And uh, the talk I gave several years ago, quite a few years ago now, I said, I, I, I said, I wanted to reformulate Joseph Campbell's Follow Your Bliss to uh, Follow Your Awe, which I think is much better, getting at probably what Campbell was referring to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you might start there. Hmm. But going to the second part of the question, which is what is a spiritual path, I do not think a spiritual path can be divorced completely from a tradition. 
uh, I think, I mean, there may be cases where you people happen on something, uh, but there's, in the way that we were talking about music, there are people who know things. There are people yeah. who have done this. And it probably doesn't matter. Oh, let me put it this way. What matters much more than the than the tradition is the person. That's what I was just going to uh, point to. Is yeah. that is that it's it's about individuals, and, and individuals in your relationship. So you may end up practicing a tradition in a tradition that you never thought you would look at. Why? Because the person that you're working with as a teacher is able to respond to that feeling in you using the methods of that tradition so it makes sense to you yeah and uh, you know and that uh, but the I think attuning I think one of the most helpful things you can do to people is to bring awe back into their lives and not, and not this conceptual awe but real awe yeah uh, and because the way I define awe is that it's an intimate experience of intimate connection with something that is infinitely greater than you. And that, I think, is just so missing from so many people's world uh, lives these days. Oh, thank you. That's that's a perfect place to end here. Uh, Indeed. It. Yeah. <laughs> you, you brought us home. It's, it was awesome. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, Rob. <laughs> or awful. Yeah. Okay. Well, that just means full of awe, right? I, I, I agree. <laughs> You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking in the studio with our good friend, Ken McLeod. Ken learned Tibetan, translated for his teacher, Kavo Rinpoche, and has published a number of highly regarded books about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, Trackless Path. Ken is working on another book about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma and is the founder of Unfettered Mind, an organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. Next week on the show, we will be featuring an encore presentation yet to be determined from our copious files. That will be on Saturday, November 16th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, the Thursdays at Many Rivers event in Sebastopol next week is Evening of Music, The Night Mists came rising tombos tintinabuli and the blues that's with dominic shaner on electric guitar on thursday november 14th at 7:30 p.m many rivers books and tea 130 south main street in sebastopol this music will include baroque lute music by sylvius leopold weiss 1687 to 1750 organ and choral music by arvo part Born in 1935, fingerstyle blues music by Stefan Grossman, born 1945, in new arrangements for electric guitar by Dominic Shaner. The Night Mists Came Rising explores the tambo, a tomb, tintinabulum bell, and twelve-bar blue—excuse me, twelve-bar blues compositional forms—an evening of music and poetry. He's got a quote here: "Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle." Everything I do is stitched with its color, W.S. Merwin. So, lutenist, musicologist, and composer Dominic Shaner grew up on a small family farm in rural California. Here, in this infinite 
expansive nature. He was introduced to music at a young age during his following musical life. Dominic has given concerts as both a solo and ensemble musician throughout North America and in Europe. He lives in West Sonoma County where he curates radio shows for this radio station, Cows 92.5 FM. He collects private press records and forages for mushrooms around his home in the forest. An advocate for those forgotten and silenced by society, Dominic directs orchestras and explores restorative practices with at-risk populations. You can go uh, to his uh, see more about who he, who he is and what he's up to at Dominic-Shaner, that's S-C-H-A-N-E-R, dot bandcamp.com. Thank you for joining us uh, once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. And for those of you who are interested we are now on um, uh, our podcasts are now on itunes so if you uh, search through uh, your itunes on your phone uh, you can find the mystical positivist uh, and uh, hear recordings of many many of our shows so uh, check that out and if you do check that out leave uh, uh, your reviews in itunes as well and rate us and do all those good things so that uh, we can expand the coverage to more and more active listeners we leave you with music from a CD called Bach Cello Suites, performed by Angela East. Uh, this piece is the Allemand from Bach Suite Number no. 2 in D minor, BWV 1008. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. 